Phonics Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about listener feedback. Let's get into episode 24. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the reluctant user of Arch, Nate, and the guy who usually has better things to do, Matt. How are you guys? Fantastic. I'm not using Arch. I'm using SteamOS. Which is based on Arch. Keep telling yourself that. (laughs) Nate, you can slice that any way you want. It's still Arch. Get over it. So it's just like us giving crap to Matt about Among Us. We're going to be giving you crap about SteamOS. Yeah, it may be based on Arch. It may not be real Arch, but we're going to still give you crap about running Arch. Well, I mean, if you don't give me crap about saying something that's kind of not correct, I mean, that's fine. It's fine. I mean, whatever. (laughs) Nate, you can use all the technicalities and what ifs and try to maneuver out of the fact that you're running Arch okay you won't if i ever have to use one of those convoluted arch package management commands then i will admit to it but until that point (laughs) i am going to firmly keep my foot down saying i am not using arch it's because you haven't had to pseudo pac-man tack syu a package yet (laughs) tack alphabet soup yeah (laughs) don't worry nate we'll make sure that steam fixes that for you I think the moment that happens, it goes open SUSE. Well, good thing it's an immutable file system because I don't see that happening very often. <laughs> all kinds of game talk already. You've got a weekly game thing, and that's coming up again, isn't it, Matt? Yeah. So for those that don't know, every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern, generically for Game Sphere, we do a live community stream. Various games. Uh, some weeks we have polls for you guys to vote on and decide what game to subjugate me too because some of the games that you guys get choices on are not games that i'm interested in or ever interested in like among us but you know unfortunately i, I kind of back myself into a corner on that one now i gotta play that one yeah when are you gonna like be good on that promise i've been waiting very impatiently i'm waiting for that announcement well, you can talk to ryan and michael and whenever i can get them on at the same time with everybody else so we can play a community stream of among us so bug them, not me. Mm, see, you dropped off the show for like, what, two or three weeks? And it felt like an eternity. <laughs> and Bill had to, you know, pick up your slack. I figured you're like trying to weasel your way out. You know, just kind of avoid it, make sure everyone forgot about it or something like that. But I tell you what, I'm not forgetting about this. No, it is definitely in the works. Okay. So it's not on me. It's on people above me in this case. <laughs> I'm good for it whenever. Okay, so Nate, I think we need to go ahead and talk to Michael and Ryan and see if he's actually asked them when we can play. Yeah, I think he's kind of kicked that can down the road a little no, bit. No, so. so verbatim, mm-hmm. I just had a meeting with them and I said, uh-huh. I need to figure out when you guys are available so we can do the whole Among Us thing, which I was promised for the charity event. I've already done my part. We still need to ask. You can ask all you want. <laughs> Of course, he'll probably deny it, but that's okay. besides the point. Well, do. Yeah, this has to happen <laughs> here because you know, I got my Steam Deck is mostly broken in here. Probably needs a little more time to you know, totally broken in. But, you know, I want to make sure I'm ready to dab you if at all possible, Matt. <laughs> no comment. 
Uh, well, so speaking of taking stabs at things, uh, while I'm taking stabs at gaming and using that whole sphere of industry, Nate, you're using a different kind of sphere for a whole different stab at electronics and other things. That was quite the segue there. I'm using that big sphere in the sky, that giant ball of incandescent gas, that thermonuclear furnace, to now power my home. I would say it's been mostly successful. It's not fully operational yet until something gets inspected so that I can actually put power back onto the grid and and so forth. And I got there's some other tweaking with the main house battery that has to happen yet too. But some other tweaking that I have to do is unfortunately the photovoltaic circuitry causes noise on the power lines and that's causing some of my dimmer switches. Well, I should say I have eight dimmer switches in the house that are controllable through home assistant. Five of those eight are now dead. And three of those eight are functional again, but I had to add a power line filter on those circuits to reduce the amount of noise being induced on them. So very annoying, incredibly irritating, and I'm trying to figure out how to clean all this up yet. But apparently the equipment I have, although it says clean power, I don't think they mean clean sine wave power. But regardless, I am already happy about how much I've saved on electricity so far. If you looked at my electric bill, because I have a plug-in hybrid, you would probably have your jaw hit the ground. But I'm not paying for gas. I haven't in over a month. So this will offset a lot of my costs. Sure, there's a loan on it, but I'm going to be paying electricity no matter what. But the big thing is now figuring out a way to get those dimmer switches back online without them getting knocked off by the power line noise. It's really kind of annoying and I've had to like seek out higher powers out there on the interwebs. So do you have an idea right now of what you can do to fix it or you're still looking for some of those solutions? I think I have a workable fix right now. To my living room and my bedroom, I have a power line filter that seems to be working somewhat. There's still a little bit of a flicker to it. It's not completely smoothed out. So I'm going to buy a more aggressive line filter module to put basically in my service box for that circuit to see if that smooths it out. As far as the other dimmer switches, rather than spend, uh, I don't want to say a fortune, but $65 a module, this more aggressive one, I'm going to just put in just toggle switches for now on most of the rest of the house. There's other seven switches, which is a little bit annoying to me because I like being able to dim the lights down. But until I can really like clean it up and, and figure out what's going on here, I'm, I'm just going to have to play on the safer side of things because I, I don't need switches just falling off the network and stop working because to not have the ability to turn a light on is very aggravating and so i've gone a few days now of no light in the kitchen up until today oh no <laughs> yeah like no light at all like basically I have to use like the light over the oven to light the room which is not lighting the room as you're trying to make dinner yeah the sun stays up pretty late right now so pretty much when the sun goes down hey shuffle off the bedtime now which is still right. pretty late so i think what i might end up doing and this is like thinking about if i can't solve this dimmer issue right now i just got a toggle in there right now If I can't solve the dimmer issue, I think what I might end up doing is pushing up my timetable on putting programmable lights under the kickboard, like the baseboard, the toe kick area of the the cabinetry, and also underneath the upper cabinets as well. I could tie that in with Home Assistant to turn on different color lights using like ESP Home, or even tie that into when I do music sequences on the outside of the house, but that might even annoy me. So, But I could at least (laughs) change the color based on like whatever month it is throughout the year, make the kitchen more festive. So I might end up doing that instead of worrying about dimmable lights, I might end up just doing just mood lighting in the areas in the kitchen. We know where Nate spends all of his time. Most of the time in the kitchen, actually. It feels like once I get lunch done, I get a few things done, then it's like time to start supper. Yes. One of those realities of single parent life. Having children, cooking at home. And sometimes you get stray kids too that 
that come on by and then you have to cook for them as well. <laughs> yes. So speaking of strays, actually, I have no idea how this segues in, but Magneto had a class reunion. <laughs> yes, yes. We had Magneto's class reunion this last weekend. So I told you it was going to be a super, super busy July. And we were gone once again for the class reunion this last Saturday. It was so much fun. We had an absolute blast doing it. The biggest thing that I found out from all of this was my husband graduated with some really wild and crazy guys and I can no longer party until 2 a.m. and then be functional the next day like I used to be able to do. We were so incredibly (laughs) tired and I mean incredibly tired that following Sunday. We left his buddy's house at 2 o'clock in the morning. We got to his parents' house probably around like 2.30-ish. It doesn't take quite a half hour to get back to his folks' house from town, but right around there. And then we got home and I actually wore makeup that day and I'm like, crap, I still have to wash my face. Like, really? I don't want to. (laughs) We were leaving super early the next day, but we didn't get out of there as early as we wanted to. But I'm like, I'm glad we left when we did because had it been any later, I think all of us might have fallen asleep on the way home. So yeah, biggest lesson learned is... (laughs) <laughs> I don't party as well as I used to or recover as well as I used to anyway. For I think most people when you get into your, like out of your 20s, seems like the bounce yeah. back and no matter what it is you do in life seems to be more of a thud than a bounce. I mean, I don't know what you mean. I'm going to be 29 for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess I'm only 39 and 48 months. There you go. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash T-U-X 2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. It's been a little while since we've done a full-fledged listener feedback episode, and it is time for another one of those This first email actually came in pretty recently. It's from Daniel, and he's referencing a previous show way back in February where I was talking about getting my very first VR set. And I quote, This message is more intended for Wendy, but it can also go for anyone interested in buying a VR set nowadays. I'm also a new listener, so I apologize if I do not know the entire story, as I'm only listening to it right now. You probably already bought a VR headset, but just in case you didn't, I would love to help 
any way I can. The Oculus Skull, which was mentioned in the last episode of DLN Extend, or 95 of Linux Out Loud, this is not the way to go. If you will be playing SteamVR games unless you're willing to do some extra modification, as it only supports 3DFO tracking, basically, you can only tilt, rotate, and swivel your head in terms of tracking, making it more of a glorified Google Cardboard. I didn't know that. Thank you very much much for that little hint. He goes on to say, and the controller is useless for VR games. Unfortunately, due to the current monopoly in the market, the Oculus Quest 2, or 1 if you can pick it up for cheap, is the only headset that can be recommended for under $500. Thankfully, the Oculus Quest 2 is pretty much better in terms of visuals than the HTC Vive and can be used without a PC with a project called Oculus. You can unlink your Facebook account from the headset and still use it. Additionally, there is an open source way to get it to work on Linux, which is using a program called ALVR, which wirelessly streams VR data to your headset, so you will need a rather beefy Wi-Fi connection for that. I hope that I've been a help. If you want any more VR tips or help, I'm absolutely willing to help. Thank you for making such a great show. I hope you all have a great day. Now, this is some really interesting information. And when Matt and I were talking on that episode, I ended up not going with the Oculus. And I think it was maybe the episode falling where I said what we got. Because after that, we started looking into some of the HTC Vive stuff. And we went with the HTC Vive because it didn't need the Facebook account at the time. And I don't know if this was an option at the time or not, where there was this project where you could unlink them. It definitely sounds like you know way more about VR. We are currently using an HTC Vive, which my kids picked up for an amazing use price. It was like practically brand new for $250. So I think we did pretty good that way. Comparing it to graphics, I have no idea what it's like between the two. I'd be interested to kind of hear how they differ as far as the graphics go. We've got it running beautifully on Linux right now, but I'm kind of excited to have someone in our realm, in the listenership of the show that is so heavy into VR. Like this is a super awesome resource for figuring out some of these things and definitely when we go to upgrade our VR headset. Yeah, for sure. I mean, having an expert out there that you can lean on a little bit, if nothing else, build some kind of confidence that you can make more changes, you can add new hardware and so forth, because there's some experience out there. Yeah, definitely. My understanding, and this is just what I know of, again, I am not by any means a VR gamer. I do keep up on it enough to understand what's going on in that market, but I am not a VR gamer. For me, I just can't justify the cost. I know Oculus, the newer ones, is going to have a higher pixel density, so it's a higher resolution, faster refresh rate, and it's going to be lighter and has newer USB um, stuff and supports Wi-Fi. So there are perks to it, but on the same note, there is that tie-in to Facebook because literally at the end of the day, do you want to buy something from Facebook? Or sorry, Meta, whatever. I do not. At the end of the day, regardless of where you're coming from, it's where do you want to get your hardware from? You know, I mean, I can't say that I would personally want anything from Facebook given their their terms of service with stuff. (laughs) 
um, anything remotely related to their terms of service. You know, going with the Vive is just, for some people, is a better option. The thing with the Vive, though, is it has, like, the OLED or AMOLED screens. It has the the, the entire laser tracking system there. And it's DisplayPort as opposed to, I believe, HDMI, which is the other one, the newer one for... uh, No, this one is HDMI. The HTC Vive is HDMI, which was kind of the problem when we upgraded from the RX 580 to this Vega 64 was the Vega 64 only had one HDMI output. And I was like, hmm, what are we going to do? I ended up having a dongle that was able to convert a HDMI into a display port. Now, the headset couldn't use that, but the TV that I used as a second monitor was able to take that dongle no problem. And everything's running pretty seamlessly with that. Yeah. So like I said, it's nice to have somebody that's really, really knowledgeable in this because this is not, I'll be the first to admit, not my area of expertise at all. (laughs) Generically, I'm going to be totally real. I have no interest in VR gaming at all. The requirements to even remotely do it generically are just too much for me. But for somebody who's into it and have that resource for people who are using it, totally awesome to have in the community. Not going to poo-poo on somebody's passion for something in gaming. So maybe with their help, Wendy, maybe when you do look to upgrade it, maybe the... I'm not saying you will, but I'm saying maybe that does put the Oculus, whatever version they have at the time, on the potential list of things to buy. Maybe. And buying one used, I don't necessarily see us buying a new VR headset just because they're so incredibly expensive. So getting it on the used market, it means the money isn't directly going to Meta or whatnot. And we all know how those of us here feel about that company after last week's lengthy social media discussion. Daniel goes on to say, I would also recommend you check out the VR open source community as they have been coming up with some amazing projects like Slim VR, which gives full body tracking for really low prices and Lucid VR, which is making hepatic VR gloves. They could make some very nice points in hardware addicts as well. I really like this idea. I need to step up my game as far as like hardware addicts and having better hardware than Ryan. So let's go check out some open source VR hardware. So in fairness, Ryan does change hardware more than probably most people change clothes in general. True. (laughs) But he's always got a new laptop or something every time we record hardware addicts. And yes, it's only a bi-weekly show. But dang, that's a lot of hardware. So for people who could say I have too much hardware change all the time, Ryan's got me beat by a, a mountain and a moonful. Without a doubt. <laughs> Sounds like it. Thanks so much, Daniel, for that awesome feedback. And we will definitely be staying in touch over VR hardware and the software on Linux. So one episode we did get a, a few different comments on was the one where we talked about paying for Linux. And that was a, uh, a lengthy discussion that we had, not just amongst ourselves, uh, but apparently sparked some rather interesting takes from the community. Not in a bad way, just different than how we see it, which that's what this whole show is about, is sparking those conversations. From the forums, DDMan7 posted, 
if we ever enter a world where it becomes normal and majorly accepted to charge for FOS, I would like it to exist in the way that Asprite and other similar programs do it, where they provide the source code and uh, compilation instructions, but also offer a paid binary for those who would prefer to buy an already compiled version. I think this approach is really good as programs can remain open source. They can remain free of charge for those who need it to be free to the extent that they're willing to compile it themselves. The developers can more easily receive a financial income for their product. My other favorite solution is offering support for paying customers like what we we have seen with rel-based enterprise distributions. With options like these, there's no reason why open source developers couldn't make some money back for their efforts without having to rely on donations. So I'm not saying that is wrong. I do agree to a certain extent. However, support is tentative because that depends on what your definition of support is honestly the rel way of doing it i believe and i could be mistaken it's been a while since i looked at the rel license i believe they do on a per core basis if i remember correctly it's been a long time since i looked at the rel like user license agreement i know they've changed ever since the centos stuff and whatever but support is one way we have to i think the problem that we have right now is that we only have really how do we pay for stuff through support that's just kind of like a broad generalized like business model of like pay for support okay but there has to be other avenues and ways for people to get stuff in say software stores and all the other stuff like that we have to be willing to look at as well I know for me, I've paid for things like Krita on Windows. I paid for things like Krita on Steam because just there. I mean, granted, I have it installed through Arch stuff, but I think we have to be willing to stop with the mentality that just because it free as in freedom and, you know, all the four freedoms and open source and all the stuff that goes with that, that we still have this mentality of like, oh, I'll just go to the repos and download it, use it a bunch, rely on it, and not kick back in some way, shape, or form, be it time or money or whatever, to a developer. I think that's where the support aspect comes in. Support the application however that is needed, not just, oh, you know, I pay for tech support, basically, which is the generic business model we currently seem to have. I also kind of wonder if tangentially, if things like the KDE Foundation, these what it's called, how they pull in different projects and then they fund those based on all the money they pull in. There's something to be said about those different foundations that support these various projects. I know it's different, but it's similar, but kind of different. Nonetheless, it is another method that I think, and not exactly the RHEL or SUSE Linux Enterprise method of support, but it's another way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at things like the Blender Foundation, this is probably the best example as far as like, if you want to talk about like open source projects, I'm not even going to get into the Linux Foundation. I have enough issues with the Linux Foundation because, you know, they just kind of ignore the desktop end of it. The Blender Foundation is probably the best example of a foundation being supported and a piece of software being developed like software, software. I'm not talking kernels and, you know, Mesa and all these other kind of stuff. I'm talking a piece of generic computational software <laughs> that has a pointy clicky interface for a very specific task, which is 3D development work. But I think, you know, you got companies like Ubisoft, much as people like to complain about companies, they're kicking back financially to these things. Uh, another one's OBS. They're financially being built into a community. So OBS is built into the gaming industry as a whole. These companies are realizing that it's being used so they kick back to it and i think like financially so that developers can get paid to actually continue to develop this because at the end of the day these businesses are looking at it from a business sense 
and it's going to help their bottom line in one shape or form or another. So if they kick back a hundred grand to a developer to go develop some software and they see a ROI of like 10 times potentially, they're not going to care. I think that foundation mentality is also a good way of looking at it too. Because like you mentioned, you also have things like KDE and stuff too. My issue with Blender itself is that it's just one application with a foundation by it. Great. I'm glad it's there and it's doing its thing. But there are smaller pieces of software that don't necessarily get funded as the developer individually because it's maybe obscure or it's a foundational piece that goes into a lot of other things. But getting rolled into something like KDE or some of these others out there that are multi-conglomerate of various different software projects, they can get funding through those where one person, you know, maybe donates 50 bucks a year or whatever to something like KDE or whatever, and they support all different developers that are part of it. How exactly that works, but... I know the KD community develops, maintains more than 200 applications. And so there's somehow things are divided up between that. Exactly. I don't know, but it's a way of potentially sustaining the free software movement by having more things wrapped into a series of different organizations that you know might be important to you as a Linux user. Yeah. You're talking more meta as bad as that sounds. <laughs> like a meta package would install. There's a meta package for KD applications, right? Yeah. So there's like a meta organization that will say uh, for creative. So they would take care of like you know, video editors and however you want to divvy up that structure. I get what you're saying there. I would definitely be in favor of that. I mean, personally for me right now, anything that I generically use, I pay for. I go out of my way to either find the weird GitHub, PayPal, uh, donation links, or, you know, what Patreon, whatever way I can support the programs and the, the apps and stuff that I use, I try to find a way to do that. What I think that he brings up that's really, really interesting is the way that Asprite, and I hope I'm saying that right, is doing their development. So if you go directly to their website, I did look it up. It's $20 for the application, but it is also an open source application. So if you didn't want to or couldn't pay that $20, you could compile it yourself and use it without paying for it. That is one way that you can get funding for an application that maybe not everybody is super excited about because they don't necessarily want to build their own application, but the code is still out there for everybody to see and for everybody to use. So I think it is a good option. They do have their application on Steam. So if you were buying it and wanted to use it on an, a Linux system, you would get it directly through Steam, which is how Credit is doing it in some ways. They've got it available on Steam. They've got it in the Windows Store. And there are more avenues than just the average person having to donate because like Nate was saying, not every project can be as big as Blender and as big as OBS. Yeah, they didn't start out massive. They had to get to a place where there was larger companies backing them. Most projects won't get there. Most projects will not be in a state where movie companies are like, hey, we absolutely need this project and we're going to fund it. So what are other ways that they can keep going? And I actually think this is a really smart way to do it. Yeah, I'm totally for seeing more open source applications on things like Steam or I know a lot of people like oh well they're charging for applications by all means let them if that means I have to go to Steam and you know do I know I can go to a package manager and get insert application here 
yeah, awesome, cool. If I need to, if I want to actually pay for the developer to actually continue developing, I'll go to a storefront or use the myriad of archaic ways of trying to financially contribute to certain projects that we have now. I would prefer a much cleaner way of getting to that point, which I think is like what you were mentioning, Wendy. We don't have an easy way to actually support developers directly and on a per application basis. So I think things like app stores and all the other stuff actually do help the overall community. And I think we have been kind of spoiled with the fact that we can go into any repo, however you want to use an app or the AUR. We've been spoiled by the fact that we can just get applications and off you go. Generic don't have to pay for that upfront cost, which I'm fine with. But on the same note, I, I think... In order for some of these applications to truly get what they really need is developer focus. You have to be willing to have a little more willingness to, if somebody wants to throw this on a pre-compiled binary on a app store, okay, cool whatever. I'm not going to complain about it. Yeah, exactly. And I brought this up a little while ago. We talked about it when Bill was with us, this email from Eduardo that's talking about that exact same episode of Linux Out Loud. It is this kind of complicated discussion of, like he says, while I agree that developers should be paid for their contributions, I disagree that companies should be compelled to pay for them. It's kind of being stuck in this rock in a hard place where how do we make sure that projects get funded, but we stay true to the open source model at the same time? It's kind of this give and take that has to happen and where does that funding come from and how do we easily fund projects and where do they find different revenue sources? Yeah, definitely. That's something that despite some of the communities bickering, they have to be willing to let the projects try to figure that out because every time projects try to, oh, monetization or anything related to it, (laughs) just like to pay for the application, you know, like you would on a piece of Windows or Mac software, all you hear is complaining about it. And it's just like, who cares? If you pay for it and they still give you source code, who cares? If you want the binary and somebody else hasn't built it from the source code or you haven't gone out of your way to find it, then go pay for the app. That's your, I don't see the big deal about it. I know a lot of other people do because they see the cost as a financial barrier and barrier to entry and I get it. I do pay for software for Linux and I like that I get a demo, I can try it out. And then if it does actually work for me, I have no problem paying for it. But again, I've had no problem paying for Linux from the very start. The issue though that I have is If, let's say, you can't afford it because that's to go through a hard time or something happens where you don't have the ability to pay for it again, like losing the software is kind of what bothers me, which is why I don't like the subscription model. Right. But there are some applications, like I was using an application, actually used it for about 10 years on Linux, which is surprising, and it just didn't have a feature anymore. And like, I went to look to see, you know, what it costs. And actually, I bought it again. Sure, they probably would have liked it if I paid for it more frequently, but probably had they locked me out of the software, I probably wouldn't have bought it again because I've had a bad taste in my mouth. I'm not sure how exactly to navigate all that, you know, by companies themselves. I think the fact that there's a KDE foundation that does get funding, I feel good about the core of my operating system. There is a base level of applications that I can already have access to, but then maybe the extra things sure I'll have to pay for. And most applications really, at least the ones that I use, are not that expensive, really. The uh, was a PDF editing application, it was like PDF Studio, it was like 70 bucks. And then, you know, it's good for a couple of years, I guess, something like, I bought it a couple of years ago again. I haven't checked for any updates since, but you know, I don't need any of the newer features at this point. So, you know, I'm fine with where I'm at. You know, if I can buy it and I have something, even if it's a little bit older, if it still does the job I want it to do, I'm pretty happy. And if that's not GPL, 
But I think that there are, are models that could be done. And actually thinking about this, you know, if there can be a hey what you want or something like that in Flathub, you know, for the flat packs. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of tooling that has to be done on the backside, you know, with Discover and, and probably GNOME software, people still use that to make that work. I'm sure that there's going to be something that can be developed that we can all kind of rally around. There's something like what Elementary OS has, the pay what you want piece of it. And, you know, if you nag people a little bit, I think it's a good model. I will pay for software because I have no problem doing that. We got another email from David Page. It says, I highly recommend Fedora. I've been using various Nix operating systems since starting to work with Microsoft Xenix. It's called Xenix, right? Xenix? I used Ubuntu on Microsoft Windows when it used a Wubi installer in a directory that could then be booted into it. In 2009, I looked at the main distros, what their philosophies and goals were, and settled on Fedora. I've been using that for my main system, although I've occasionally used other distros for pet projects. I like that Fedora is only free software, but it allows the installation of non-free if desired. Yeah, I totally agree with him, although I'm not using Fedora. It is my number two operating system that I, I would say that I would go to if OpenSUSE just disappeared tomorrow. I definitely like the Fedora model for things. How quickly they roll, essentially. It's kind of like a, just a very slow rolling distribution. It's like if a tire were a square, that's what Fedora is. And the fact that they are staying on the cutting edge of technology, implementing new things and whatnot, which you know, can be problematic for some. But I think Fedora is pretty rock solid and it's been great, especially since they use the OpenQA now, since OpenSUSE kind of helped out with Fedora. It's pretty much been, been great since then. I think this feedback came when I had freshly installed or was thinking about freshly installing Fedora on my main system. And while I am back to using Manjaro as the one I constantly boot into on my main system, Fedora is still here. I should probably jump into that one and update it because it's been a while since I've been into that drive. But I am currently still using Fedora 36 as the daily driver on my kitchen system. It runs so smoothly. It runs so clean. And it is one of those really nice operating systems where it comes fully open source. But it's pretty easy to find the steps to add the non-free software to it. I typically have to in order to have everything that I need. As we've talked about, I do like to pull some of the proprietary drivers from AMD in order to use OpenCL and Darktable. But Fedora is pretty nice. I like so many of the things that it has to offer. And it has been my daily driver in the past on my main system and eventually could be the daily driver on on my main system again. Pretty rock solid. I love all of the things that they do, just like many in the community do too. So I also think on that same episode, when you mentioned Fedora, I just said, yeah, not for me. I think the comment is kind of twofold there. I have a, I don't want to say love hate with Fedora. It's just, it doesn't fit my use cases on what I need out of a system. It feels like when you go from a pre-done kind of a distro, a distro that's meant for the hardware and that kind of stuff where it's just, it just works. You know, you, you get those systems where you just slap a distro on it and the hardware just works and the software just works. My experience with Fedora has not been that generically because of the systems that I use, which are generically NVIDIA systems and, you know, all the other stuff. I love the work that the project does. I love the work that the Red Hat team does with the project. I love all of that. I'm not a gnome 
Chrome guy, so I'm not going to use their primary. I'm probably going to use, if I ever use Fedora, it's going to be the KDE side. But Fedora, for me, is just not what I look for in a distro. It's cool that it gives an open source base and you can do whatever you want with it. But really, because the way I look at Linux is that everything generically is an open source base and you can rip and move and tear out whatever guts you want and don't want anyway. So it doesn't really matter. That's what the package manager is for. But you like stupid package managers, though, just to be fair. Also, to be fair, I don't actually prefer to use the actual terminal either, Nate. Oh, that's right. Probably because it's such a convoluted package management system. So that's your excuse on that, right? No, because even in Ubuntu, <laughs> I don't use apt from the terminal. How do you manage your systems remotely? Because I don't worry about managing my systems remotely because every system's got a different OS on it because I tailor the OS to the system instead of trying to tailor the system to the OS. Square in the square and not square in the circle. All right, whatever. Says the guy running Linux, Arch, though. by the way. And I don't mean right, that's the only one I don't administer remotely because I don't administer that machine. It administers itself. <laughs> yeah. It's an appliance. It's a toy. Nate, got to remember how <laughs> I view computers. They're all appliances. Sure, I guess. Yeah. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. It's that time for game of the week. I'm really curious as to what you have for us. You still have a lot of time to make up for when you are gone. I hope this is a good one. So this particular game I actually did on this past week's uh, live stream for GameSphere. This one is called Loopmancer. 2.5D side-scrolling roguelite game. For those that don't understand what roguelite or roguelike games are, they're procedurally generated games. So every time you play them, something's different. It's different. The levels are different. The placement of enemies is different, etc. That's the, the gist of those styles of games. So, oh, all this time I had no idea. I would say I'm shocked, but I'm not because, you know, Nate's not a genres that Nate don't understand. What makes this game unique is it's a roguelike, but it's also a story focused roguelike. All the cutscenes and all that stuff, they're not done in a 2D way. They're done with 3D character models on a 3D plane, but on a side view. So they're actually 3D models on a 3D plane, technically. But the way you're looking at them is actually in a 2.5D way. So everything has a full range of motion as far as the character models and all the other stuff. But the actual design does not... It looks very 2D, which is an interesting design choice. was something that I like. But I'm also a cyberpunk fan. This is not a family-friendly game at all. 
roguelikes tend to be, I don't want to say hard, but they're more challenging than most games. So Nate, I don't know if this might be too new, but do you remember a game called Strider? No, not at all. Never heard of it. I didn't think so. Uh, so Metroidvania, <laughs> Metroid games. Yes, yes, of course not Metroid. Yeah. 2D side scrollers. Yep. Mm-hmm. That is essentially the gameplay loop for these, except for without the memorization because of the percentagely generated stuff. You can choose the voice acting. The It has NVIDIA RTX stuff. It has DLSS and various other aspects. thing I liked about it was the choice consequence system on the choices that you can make actually affect the story, which is unique for a roguelike, which is unique for this style of game because I'm a story-focused guy, and that was the thing that drove me to this particular game because it was like, ooh, cyberpunk, side-scrolling 2.5D beat-em-up action game with a story huh interesting that's something i definitely liked about this game gameplay is really fun too well the graphics are definitely really pretty awesome i don't know if it's compatible with the steam deck you didn't mention that i just see a windows logo so i played this and streamed this from my amd system my desktop which is guru to linux and ran perfectly fine steam deck and that was on epic settings for the one i was running on the steam deck in order to get that consistent frame rate Either drop the refresh rate down to 40 if you want to go higher settings, or if you go with medium graphic settings overall, you'll generically get close to that 60 uh, frames per second, which gives you that smoother gameplay than as opposed to the, kind of the gameplay that jumps all over the place. But yes, it does work on the Steam Deck. Gotcha. That's kind of important right now for me. <laughs> I don't know if it's a $25 game, which I know is its current cost, or it might be on sale still. It was on sale as of yesterday when I looked. It was $22.50, I think. Either way, I think it's definitely a game worth looking at if you have any interest in roguelikes or cyberpunk games. Well, I'm going to have to say probably not for me. It doesn't... um, Well, there's that. That's not... Hey, that's not entirely accurate for me anymore. I have been playing newer games or the Lego games, but they're still newer. You've been playing them with your kids, am I not mistaken? Correct. When was the last time you played a new game for you? <laughs> there's the question. When I installed Among Us. <laughs> and there's the plug for the fulfillment of a promise. I'm going to keep hammering on that one. <laughs> no, you never. Speaking of games that I'm recommending and you're asking about the Steam Deck, Nate, you actually got a chance to play the Steam Deck out and about. What's wrong with you? It's a console. I did. I had a camping trip last week. It was with some buddies. We had like a people I haven't seen in probably like the last decade or so. And so we got together about an hour away from where I live and I took my Steam Deck with me. Just to like, you know, when I had just some downtime in the tent or whatever, I'd whip it out and I'd play a game, not important what games, and then I could just hibernate or sleep or hit the little power button. It would like go into like a low power state mode and I could put it away, whatever. And it was actually really quite convenient. I've never had a device like this. I didn't have a Game Boy or Game Gear or anything growing up. I never had an Atari Lynx. How much older can I go? So this is like the first portable gaming thing I've ever had outside of a laptop. And it's super convenient. I play a lot more video games now because of the Steam Deck not for like long periods of time, the ability just to whip it out, use it for 15, 20 minutes, whatever, stick it back in the case or, you know, plug it in, whatever, let it charge after a while was super convenient. I really had a lot of fun with it. And it's amazing. Like a lot of people were very interested in and knowing more about this piece of hardware who are not gamers, just looking at it. It has a great feel. When it rained, I didn't take it out of its case because, you know, obviously that's kind of dumb, but it was just a lot of fun to have. And I'm really glad I had it. I didn't really have much other technology with me. A nice piece of kit just to have with me for some fun, you know, when just kind of relaxing as a time filler. 
Linux historically has not had a great track record of going to sleep and waking up and having no issues whatsoever. The Steam Deck seems to have it all dialed in to the point where it brings back up whatever it is you were doing and it's not glitchy at all or anything. So pretty amazing. A lot of fun. I'm really glad I have this toy. No regrets. Except maybe, you know, I did get the etched glass model of the 512 gigabyte storage. And I was thinking if there was a screen protector for it, because I like putting screen protector on things, it kind of defeats the purpose of the etched glass, does it not? Uh, yes and no. The etched glass is also doesn't have as much reflection as the normal one. It diffuses like background lighting and stuff a little more on the screen. But yeah, generically, you'd be correct. Well, anyway, at this point, I'm still glad I got the larger model. I have not had to take it apart to change any of the storage inside of it. It doesn't really go outside that much anyway. This just happened to be one particular event where it, it did come out. It was nice to have, and I highly recommend it if you like the ability to go portable. It's actually freed up my other computers from doing any kind of gaming at this point, too. Good, bad, or otherwise. But Wendy, I went camping, but it sounds like you had some... Was it, was it a camping adventure where you had a fire in the middle of a desert? No, we actually live in the desert, and I almost feel like I jinxed the situation. As we were on our way home from the class reunion, I'd commented to my husband that, man, it's been a really dry, hot year, and really there hasn't been too many fires. Well... Here there goes my big mouth, and Monday there was a fire on the desert out here. The smoke was just a-rolling. The kids were all in bed, and my husband's like, hey, why don't we go look at the fire? Because from our yard, we could go look at this active fire out on the desert. I was almost asleep, and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to. And we walk out there, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, that would make a really cool picture. And I just stood there and didn't go back in the house for a while, and I kept thinking that would just be an amazing picture that won't be like that tomorrow. If you don't go get your camera, you're gonna miss it. So I went ahead, went in and got my camera. Now these needed to be long exposures. It was pretty late in the day at this point. Like Nate was saying, it's summertime. So we have pretty long light at this point. The sun was just a little bit behind the mountains in this image. And I actually created images in two different ways for this because there's some different large building around us. I can't control the light on those building, so I have to do it in post. The first one was, I think, about an eight-second exposure. And because of the lights on that building, that most of that foreground, it's mostly a lot of weeds, some dry, tall grass. It was all really bright in that eight-second exposure because it was gathering the light from those outer buildings. So I made multiple versions of that image, pulled them into GIMP, and then layered them to get the desired look. In the mm. second image that I did, which it's not exactly the same angle, it's still zoomed in pretty tight, but shows the edge of the fire on the left-hand side a little bit better, I used the graduated density module inside Darktable. Now, this module is super cool. You can also do it with a different filter if you've got one. I have some, but they just didn't quite fit the job that I needed it to do because of the line of that grass. The line of that foreground was just a little too close, so I still couldn't do it in camera the way I wanted to. So I turned on this graduated density filter, set it for pretty dark, I think bringing it down three stops, and then it was still bleeding into my fire because that was so close. So this is why Darktable is so amazing in its functionality and how awesome it works. 
So I was able to go ahead and set a mask and say, I don't want any of this area affected. So only use the graduated density module inside this section of the image. Even though I was able to do the images in two different ways, I still ended up with what I wanted where the foreground gets darkened and the focus can be the fire that's going on in the background. Well, I definitely want to see this photo whenever you're ready to publish it. It sounds pretty cool. The version that I did with GIMP and multiple layers right now you can find on Macedon and my pixel fed pages. I will post links to those in the description and I'll probably go ahead and drop both versions of those images on the discourse form with all of the show notes and say this is the image that I processed this way and this is the image that I processed that way. And really you won't be able to tell the difference between the two and there are two different ways of processing. It's really nice that I have all of these tools and can do this in different ways. How much time do you think you're going to spend on the post-processing of the photo to get the desired results? The one using GIMP took me a lot longer because I ended up exporting three different versions of the image and pulling them together in post. Whereas the one that I did directly in Darktable took a lot less time because I didn't jump programs and I wasn't trying to blend them together. So I say the dark table only version was a lot faster. I probably had it fully edited inside 15-ish minutes and the other one probably took me 30, but that was also the first one I did. And some of that time, especially if it's the first image you're working on in a project, is deciding how do I want to process this? What did the image raw come out looking like? And what do I need to do to it to have the final look that's desired? So there's a little bit more processing time and just figuring out what you want to do with the first one in a batch. Would you ever consider doing like a video of what you go through to do something like this? Yeah, I could definitely do that. Throw up a video of what it took me to process this image and get the look that I wanted. That would be great for camera corner. Hey, maybe I should actually get that show up and running. Huh? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, Linux Saloon, and so much more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting Tux Digital Merch Store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here short or join Team Wendy with some Sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. Unless you're talking to Nate, then be mean. <laughs> I'm the good one. <laughs>